Hey guys. Hey guys. Welcome to Half Sora. With Abigail. Oops. Oh my God. Why did I <laughs> Hello, Eliana. <laughs> so, yeah, I am Abigail. And I am Eliana. And we hope you guys are having a really great week and are looking forward to Shabbat. Okay, guys, like I had a revelation. It's not a revelation at all, it happens every single week. But the weeks are so fast. Like, it just, Shabbos happens all the time. It's like, I'm not going to say it's too much because some, sometimes like I really love it and I super appreciate it and it's like the best thing that ever happened. But like, I don't know, like my days are endless and they keep like blending together, but I feel like the weeks are so short now that like, true, don't have any time. Like I just wake up and I'm like, oh, Shabbos again. Like, every <laughs> okay, that's it. <laughs> it's just like, what is happening? I have no concept of anything. It's day 600,000 billion of Corona. Yeah. I'm sure they're not going to know if you were serious or hyperbolic right there. Oh my God. Shut up. I don't know. Like, wait, was she already on day six million? Oh my God. Stop it. Cost, cost. <laughs> That's not okay. Wow. Okay. Well, we're on Zoom as always, so bear with us. But, anyways, um, this week in Israel, it is Parsha Chukat. I mean, in America, it's Korach, but go back to our previous episode yeah last week you got it wait hold on is today like our 30th episode let me let me check that's crazy wait it might be like our 29th and then this is super awkward but that would still be 29 weeks of us doing this wait let's see guys this is our 30th episode oh my god yes yes that's crazy that means we've almost been doing this for oh actually we skipped most of brachy never mind yeah we skipped like but like we've been doing this for 30 weeks there are 30 episodes of us talking about ourselves and a little bit of oh my god chazak chazak we really went off oh my god i'm really proud of us how proud you are of us my sister was like it's so cute that you guys still do this i was like how could we end it people rely on us for real though like we've gotten conspiracy theories and threats about how we were probably kidnapped because we didn't come out with episodes like that's mad mad dedication and that's missing one week imagine if we just stopped all together would no no my life would have no more meaning same how would i know when it's afternoon on tuesday i would also literally not know what parsha it was this forces me to know true even though now we're doing a different week than it is in america but like still now it's in my head like I know. our hearts are in israel so i mean that's true <laughs> <laughs> all right so this week's uh, oh oops oh my god I, how can i even talk about this week if we don't even know what we're reading from oh my gosh Heart attack. We almost bamboozled our readers our <laughs> listeners <laughs> <laughs> guys we're gonna come out with a book we told you about this <laughs> oh my god okay so we are reading from mitocha oel hahaf wrote from within the tent the half tent i just said tempt the tent <laughs> Essays on the weekly Haftor reading from the rabbis and professors of Yeshiva University, published by Magid, which is Koran. Yo, I bet you guys just shouted that out with Eliana. Koran. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, we need Koran shirts. We need them to send us merch. Oh my God, new profile picture thing for Haftorah. <gasps> Genius. Wait, when are we making Haftorah merch? Oh my god, guys, can you please comment down below if you buy it? Hashtag Haftor. Okay, maybe we should actually check Twitter and see if people are using the hashtag Haftor. <laughs> <laughs> that would 
would be hysterical. Oh my god. I really can't wait until we get like a lawsuit from Corin. Oh my god, that's gonna be so fun. It's gonna be iconic. We're literally children though. But the thing is we're not. Like we could actually be sued. Okay, cool. I don't have money. Whatever. <laughs> and we don't make money off of this podcast. Chavaya, guys. It would actually be a Chavaya. And it's for Torah, so yeah. True. That's true. That would be our argument in court. We'd be like, you'd really arrest us when we're spreading the word of God and these amazing rabbis? Really? Exactly. How would they arrest us then? That would be so cool. Wow. Oh my god. Okay, I just got lost in the fantasy of being sued. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. let us dive not so right in, but we'll do it now. Um, Should I start? Yes, I'd love it if you did. Okay, wow, I'd be honored. So this week, our Devar Torah is by Dr. Arye, Ari, not Arye, Ari Mermelstein, Haftarat Chukat, between Yiftach and Bilam, the perils of bargaining with God. Ooh. Okay. This is one of those ones that, like, breaks down everything as they go by, like, through it point by point. So, like, it's going to be pretty systematic. So that's cool. Okay, I'm down with it. Hopefully it will all make a lot of sense. Same. Introduction. The story of Yiftach and Shoftim. Okay, we've been having a lot of Shoftim. Pause. Like, every single week has been Shoftim for the past few weeks, no? It ha- Wait, so it was... We did... Yoshua. Yoshua was one week. Oh, uh, yeah. There was, like, Gidon. There was Shimshon. There was that other story of, like, the woman who was cut into pieces. I... The legacy of Oh, no. Oh. Oops. I don't know why I thought that was Shoftim. I don't remember. No, you might be right. But yeah, it's definitely been like that era. It's been like Yoshua through Shmuel. Yeah, we like abandoned Yermiyahu for a bit. Yeah, they took a little break. They're like, wait, let's, let's, maybe they had like a Chavruta, all the rabbis, all the, um, all of them. And then they like had to reread all the earlier ones. They're like, wait, these would make sick Haftoras. Yeah. And they like littered them in later on. Oh my gosh, I wish I could have been, like, in that room, <laughs> in the room where it happened, and oh. I know, right, guys, <laughs> the Hamilton live movie thing is coming out July 3rd, so my 10th grade self is really, really showing. Um, my friend was like, I'm, I'm gonna start my free trial of Disney Plus just <gasps> for that. <laughs> I said that, oh my god, same. <laughs> okay, okay, we only got, like, four words in, so, like, let's continue. <laughs> Okay, so the story of Yiftach in Shoftim has garnered considerable interest throughout the ages, largely centered upon the fate of his daughter at the conclusion of chapter 11. The voluminous, 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 voluminous output on the subject, however, stands in stark contrast with the biblical narrative itself, which is silent in its assessment of Yiftach and his actions. Yet despite the absence of any definitive statement as to how the reader should judge Yiftach's actions, the narrator has been left has left behind subtle clues that direct us toward the message of the story. This brief treatment of the Yiftach story um, will argue that the biblical narrator has embedded some of the clues in the ne- in a network of allusions to the narrative about Balak and Bilam in Bamidbar chapters twenty two to twenty four. Um, as will be discussed below, these allusions serve to create a portrait of Yiftach as a shrewd negotiator, a shrewd negotiator. Um, whose downfall was his belief that he could strike a bargain against God. So this section is called Structure and Themes of the Narrative. The narrative from um, Perak Yud to 
Yud-Aleph can be divided in five distinct units. One, so in Perik Yud, um, Sokim Vav to Yud-Ched, Bnei Yisrael sin yet again and are punished accordingly. God seems inclined not to save them from their oppressors, leading to the Israelite leading the Israelites to plead that we stand guilty due to us as you see fit, only save us this day. The scene closes um, with a Sare Gilad offering the position of chieftain, Rosh, to the, to the man who steps forward and leads them in battle against the Ammonites. Hmm. Two, Parak Yid Aleph, Aleph to Yid Aleph. We are introduced to Yiftach, a warrior and son of a prostitute who had been driven away from his ancestral home by his brothers. With the Zikne Gilad desperate for leadership, they bring Yiftach back and confer upon him the titles of Commander Katzin and Chieftain Rosh. Three, Yud Aleph, Yud Bet to Chav Chet. Yiftach sends messengers to the Ammonite, Ammonite king in order to argue for a peaceful resolution to their conflict. Yiftach's lengthy argument, comprised of both historical and theological insights, is rebuffed by the Ammonite, making war inevitable. Four, Yud Aleph, Chaf Tet to Lamed Gimel. Yiftach vows to offer as a burnt offering, quote, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me on my safe oh my return, end quote. If God delivers the Ammonites into his hands. And then five, Yud Aleph, um, Lamed, Dalid to Mem. Okay, it's like in numbers and then we're saying it in Hebrew, so that's why we pause yeah. every time. <laughs> you have to convert it. <laughs> yeah. Yiftach returns to his house victorious, but is greeted by his daughter, an only child. Yiftach is distraught, but apparently fulfilled his tragic vow. Why is he distraught that he sees his daughter? Because he said he's gonna sacrifice whatever walks through the Oh, room. ooh, okay. I totally did not. <laughs> he should have been like, I'll sacrifice the first animal that comes through my house or whatever. Yeah, oh, he's I a chance that who else is gonna walk through his door but his daughter? Yeah. What did he think was gonna happen? Oh, okay. Each of these separate scenes revolves around negotiations between God and Israel in Unit 1, Zikne Gilad and Yiftach in Unit 2, Yiftach and the King of Ammon in Unit 3, God and Yiftach in Unit 4, and, as we will see, between Yiftach and his daughter in Unit 5. Yiftach emerges as an especially skilled negotiator. In Unit 2, Zikne Gilad, apparently not wanting to cede too, many, too much authority to Yiftach, initially offer him the position of Katsin, even though, in their internal deliberations, they had already decided to appoint their savior as Rosh. Um, what was I, I feel like we've had a lot of killing women recently. That is true. Yeah. Because we've talked about the, um. Like Ashbegeva. Yeah, like twice in the past, like, few weeks. And now we have this. And it's just like, wow. Yeah, you're right. Red there. Um, Yiftach rebuffs their underwhelming offer, chiding them for their belated attempt to reconcile with him. The Zikne Gilad, taking Yiftach's, Yiftach's um, rejoinder as a, as a negotiating ploy, then offer him the position of Rosh. After accepting the offer of Zikne Gilad, Yiftach explores diplomatic um, avenues for ending the conflict without going to battle. Yiftach dispatches a, sense, a set of messengers to question the Ammonite king's um, motives for going to battle. When the Ammonite king responds by invoking his historic right to the land, Yiftach sends another group of messengers who advance um, a much longer and more complicated argument, but to no avail. Several aspects of this second, much larger message from Yiftach should be noted. First is the remarkable length of the speech, which contains four distinct arguments woven together in support of Yiftach's cause. 
The speech's length, encompassing 13 verses, stands in marked contrast to the, to the curt response of the Ammonite king, but the king of the Ammonites paid no heed to the message that Yiftach sent him. Um, this, is a, this is a rather extreme example of con contrastive dialogue, a literary device in which the biblical narrator juxtaposes verbosity with brevity. In this case, the Ammonite king, huh? I love when they like bring in like a literary analysis and stuff. Yeah. All, I, all this reminded me of was that scene in, um, in Indiana Jones where like some guy, he's like waving his sword. He's like, I'm ready for a sword fight. And then Indiana Jones just shoots him. <laughs> he's like, well. Um, so in this case, the Ammonite king does not respond to Yiftach's entreaties at all. Um, and con the contrast here draws attention to Yiftach's resolve and his skills as a negotiator and diplomat. He manages to mount an impressive um, case in support of his cause, leaving the Ammonite king without an adequate response. Yiftach's long message to the Ammonite king is also noteworthy for its repeated references to Moab. During the course of his speech, Yiftach invokes the Moabite deity Chemosh as the god of the Ammonites and explicitly refers to Balak's unsuccessful attempt to defy God's will. In a speech that encompasses 13 verses, Yiftach mentions Ammon once and only then as secondary to Moab, to whom he refers on seven different occasions. Many biblical scholars assume, therefore, that this section originated as a document narrating the historical relations between B'nai Israel and Moab that was incorporated into our text. However, the glaring absence of Ammon can be better understood as a subtle rhetorical maneuver by Yiftach. By focusing on Moab rather than on Ammon, Yiftach tactically reminds the king that the Ammonites are an inconsequential player in negotiating politics in regional, I don't know, okay, in regional politics who take a backseat to Moab, the real force in the region. Yiftach confirms this by referring to Kamosh as the Ammonite god. Ammon was so insignificant that Yiftach cannot even correctly identify the Ammonite god. Yiftach's speech was as subtle as it was long. Hmm. That's this funny. is very interesting. Spurned by the Ammonite king, Yiftach's next nego negotiating partner is God. If you deliver the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me on my safe return from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and shall be offered by men as a burnt offering. At first glance, Yiftach appears to have succeeded in this next round of negotiations as the narrator echoing the language of, Yiftach, of Yiftach's vow confirms that God held up his end of the bargain and delivered them into his hands. As um, all that remains is for Yiftach to reciprocate um, and offer his, his sacrifice to God as promised. Yiftach's skills as a negotiator, however, fail him in the tragic conclusion of the story. When his daughter dances out to greet him, Yiftach is stunned and for the first time in the story is rendered speechless. Alas, daughter, you have brought me low. You have become my troubler. For I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot retract. The narrator subtly illustrates Yiftach's sudden loss of speech by attributing two distinct uninterrupted speech acts to his daughter in verses 36 and 37. Such cases often indicate a pause as the speaker awaits a response. In this context, it appears that Following her initial willingness in verse 36 to abide to, to, abide to the terms of, his, of her father's vow, Yiftach's daughter awaited a response from Yiftach, presumably um, a statement rescinding his vow. Put differently, she awaited one final act of negotiation in which Yiftach bargained his way out of a fateful deal with God. When the prolonged silence made it clear to her that he would not do so, she acknowledged her fate but asked for, two month, for a two-month reprieve. That is so sad. That is really sad. Like, and why? Why? Like, he did everything he was supposed to do. Uh, but I hate the whole, like, people not being able to, like, control their own destiny, like, whatever. Like, 
How like how is he able to decide that she should die? Like it should have been something that's happening to him, not happening upon. Well, it seems her. more like God. I mean, God didn't like decide that she should die, but it seems no, no, like not God. Yiftach. What do you what? Like, Yiftach bargained away his daughter. Like how is that like a thing that you can do? Like he just decided like the fate of her life without. No, I, I but I, I like he didn't mean to. I feel like it was more like a God like like, cruel irony type of thing, where, like, he, like, Yiftach obviously didn't expect his daughter to walk in, like, he was, like, all sacrifice, like, whatever, and then God was, like, that just bothers me a lot. Same. Oh, same, I hate it, but, like, it just, it just reminds me, like, a lot of, like, Grecian, like, tragedies and stuff, and, you know, like, that's very, like, the gods are just. Totally, no, honestly, right, yeah. The narrator highlights the pathos of the situation by failing to confirm the girl's fate, after two months' time, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. The ambiguity of this final, of this finale, has bothered millennia of interpreters, including some of the medieval commentators, who suggested that Yiftach's daughter was not, in fact, sacrificed. However, a plain reading of the text implies that he did, in fact, offer her as a sacrifice. Instead, the ambiguous description of his action should be taken as a register for the unspeakable act committed by Yiftach. Even the narrator cannot bring himself to inform the reader of the story's conclusion. Like his main character, Yiftach the narrator. Yiftach the narrator has nothing more to say. Wait, I feel like it's pretty clear, and this is just commentators like being like, why didn't it say exactly what he did? Like, if it says he completed his vow, yeah, killed her. Obviously, that means that he killed her. Yeah, commentators are always like, uh, everything in the pasuk is not meant to be taken literally, and I'm like, like, why is it? Like, this is pretty plain. I feel. I feel okay. I okay. This is a totally separate issue that I have about push up shot, like. If you're reading Pshat and it and it says this, then like why is it that we interpret it as like the opposite or whatever? Even though like it makes sense sometimes, like way more sense to interpret it as the commentators say, but like just like why is it that way? Okay, I don't know, whatever. Just no, I get it. <laughs> I get it. Sometimes I'm like, what are you saying? It yeah. says it right there. <laughs> like I get I feel sometimes it's so bad. Like I feel like this is a bad this is a very hot take. Like this is like a boiling take. But sometimes I think commentators just want their name to be in the book a bunch of times. Mm. Like I feel like they're just like, I need to say something. Yeah, I don't know. Also, it's kind of like one of the reasons why so much of Judaism is so divided. Because everyone's like, Oh, I'm like I agree with the Ramban, I agree with the Rambam. Okay, so like now we're enemies because I think that if you believe in magic, then you get curry, and I think that magic totally happened. So how can we both like like all of it's just like yeah. it's like a free and it's stuff. like you got it's just commentaries <sighs> like just commentaries, it's just people saying what they think. Not even like really a theological issue at a certain point. It just becomes like a mess. I can't. Okay. Yeah, no, I agree. Like people don't look at like interpretations of Shakespeare's work and decide like, well, you're going to hell because you think that Romeo and Juliet is this it's a little different because it is really oh, yeah definitely but <laughs> it's just like either way it's just commentators it's commentators on something or commentate like they're just humans they're right the issue is okay but so are chazal chazal are also just humans and then but we take it as sock and then we use it as this is equal to oh, Torah. Right. so at that point it's like okay they're humans but we have to actually take what they said to equal law and so then it's like, oh, well, do you agree with the Ramban or do you agree with the Ramban? So I guess it is a theological issue because it's like, well, you have to pick a side. But that's why everyone's divided and then everyone's doing opposite things. And then how can you say that you're part of the same religion? Okay, pop, bubble, pop. This is so not for this time. <laughs> Guys, comment down below. I'm sure you all have a lot to say about this. Yeah. Okay. 
feel like we should send that to Rob Duker and he'll be like, this is getting heated. It's <laughs> getting heated. Shout out. Okay, well, we're up to part three. Allusions to the story of Balak and Bilam in Shoftim chapter 11, or Yeralif, as, as we've been doing. Okay. The narrator then emphasizes the tragedy, but it is, but is it clear that he assigns to Yiftach blame for this incident? Commentators generally assume that the narrator was critical of Yiftach, but the precise focus of his critique, and more importantly, a textual anchor for the reading, is less clear. I would suggest that the narrator communicates his critique of Yiftach's actions through a network of allusions to the story of Balak and Bilam in Bamidbar, Prakim, Tchaf Bet, Tchaf Dalid, that need to be viewed uh, that need to be viewed against the background of our decision thus far. Prominent among these allusions are the following. One second. I just, I just think it's interesting that he keeps saying the narrator, while most would be saying, like, Shmuel. True. Yeah, but, like, it's true. I get, like, that's not, it's not, like, 1,000% that he was the writer. It's just, like, 90, I guess. Yeah, like, it's just, like, generally assumed. So maybe he's just, like, we're gonna keep this open for people who disagree and agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. I'm down with that. So prominent among these allusions are the following. One, at the most general level, both stories are organized as a set of negotiations between men and God. In the case of Bamidbar, chapter 22, there are several rounds of negotiations between Balak and Bilam, and then two negotiations between God and Bilam, including one immediately before he embarks on his journey to Balak, and again with the Malach Hashem on the way. Two, Bamidbar chapters um, Chaf Gimel to Chaf Dalet, should likewise be understood as a series of negotiations between Bilam and God as the former tries to use sacrifices as a mechanism to encourage the latter to curse Balak's enemy, B'nai Yisrael. These attempts by, by Bilam resemble Yiftach's vow um, in which he offers to bring sacrifice should God deliver B'nai Yisrael's enemy, the Ammonites, into his hands. Three, in each case, the party, faces, um, the party facing a military threat, Balak and Bamidbar, um, and Zikne Gilad and Shoftim sends for a person they hope will assist them, Bilam and Bamidbar and Yiftach and Shoftim. Um, in each case, the prospective savior uh, clarifies that his success is contingent upon div- divine will. Four, in the second scene, Yiftach plays a role, plays the role of Balak, of Balak, um, sending messages to Bilam. As with Balak, he is at first rebuffed and sends a second round of messages. That mission is likewise unsuccessful. Five, as noted earlier, Yiftach's message to the Ammonite king focuses heavily on the, rela- on the relationship between Bnei Israel and Moab during Bnei Israel's sojourn in the wilderness, and in that context, he refers explicitly to Balak, king of Moab. Six, forms of the verbal root shuv figure prominently as keywords in both narratives, appearing six times in Shoftim chapter 11 and five times in Bamidbar chapters Chafbed to Chafdalad. In each case, moreover, the root shuv emphasizes critical junctures in the story. In the, sto- in the case of Yiftach, the drama surrounds the protagonist's return home at the beginning and end of the story. The, Ammonites, um, the Ammonite king's insistence that Bnei Israel return to return his nation's ancestral land, and the contrast between Yiftach's unwillingness to retract his vow and his daughter's willingness to return home and fulfill her father's commitment. In the case of Amidbar chapters 22 to 24, the root shuv also plays an essential role in the movement of the narrative, where in each case it underscores the divine control over Bilam's movements, which as we will see shortly is the primary theme of the narrative. Hold on. Why are we talking this whole time? I feel like this should have been brought up before, 
about Balak and Bilam. They are not. Yes. <laughs> they are literally not in Parsha Chukat. They literally, okay, this Parsha is about Para Aduma. There's, um, Aaron dies in it. There's May Mariva. There's a bunch of stuff. stuff here. What? Why? This is literally Parsha Balak. Why are we, why is this in Chukat? Maybe, um, Dr. Ari Mermelstein really wanted to comment on Balak, but they didn't assign it to him. Why did <laughs> he was like, it? I don't care. I literally just, I don't understand. Hold on, I'm literally looking up because it says Bamidbar, um, which Parak? Did it um, say Bamidbar 23 to 24? Yeah. Or 22 to 24. Yeah, that's Balak. That is not Parshat Kukat. Sorry. Yo. This is okay, fine. Anarchy, guys. Yeah, no one cares anymore. There's no rules. Okay, wait. So then the rules. There's no rules. Okay, right before I do part four, I'm just gonna say I was actually talking to my sister, um, because I was like reading Parsha Hukat, not Balak, in the car yesterday. And um, well, Bene Israel complained a second time after Mame Reba, and um Moshe created this thing. I don't remember what it was, but he, like, put it, it was, like, a seraph. Well, I don't even know. Nachash, whatever. I think it was, like, a yeah. thing. And then every time they looked at it, they would, like, not be sick anymore from the plague that they got. And I was just, like, okay, so this is shot, that they're gonna look at this object, and then the object is gonna make them not yeah. die or whatever. Okay, guys, I'm for sure butchering this, but, like, how can that be? Like, that First of all, sounds like borderline of Odazara to me. Like idolatry, yeah. Literally. And second of all, like, that kind of implies, like, that it has some type of power either way. Like, even if it's, like, Hashem giving it the power, like, that's not, like, according to, like, laws of nature at all. And then my mom came in the car and she was like, no, it can be explained as, like, they looked at it and they remembered what they had done. And it was, like, a psychological sickness kind of thing. And so, like, that kind of, like, it, like, recognized it. And, like, that totally makes sense to me, but, like, that's literally not push-up shot. Push-up shot is, like, they were sick, and they looked at it, and then they were cured. Like, like, then, I don't know. Like, that just, that was my whole push-up shot rant before. That's what it was really stemming from. Um, I feel that. I just, like, I think that, like, the, like, push-up shot, like, like, there's times like that, like, where, like, you kind of have to commentate, like, if it doesn't make sense, or, like, kind of contradicts things, then you, like, have to commentate and be like, no, this is how it could be, this is how it could be, whatever, but then sometimes, like, like, in this case, where it's talking about, like, he fulfilled his vow, it's like, okay, then he killed her, I don't feel like we have to talk about this. Right, right. Like, Um, it doesn't contradict anything, it doesn't, like, go against anything we already know, like, it's just Oh, but I was wrong. They were getting bitten by serpents that God had sent. So they were getting a physical injury, mm-hmm. and then they were looking at this metal or whatever, copper, this yeah. copper serpent that was mounted on this thing, and then they would recover when they looked at it after they had been bitten. Like, how does, that's push-up shot. Like, that's what it says straight in the Pasuk. Like, I'm looking at the Pasuk. Part 21, Pasuk, like, 6 to 9. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, yeah, you can explain that away with, like, whatever, like, Mafarshim and stuff. But, like, ah, like, that's what, that's what the show says. Like, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, this, is that what we need to write about in our, in our Parsha book? Yeah. Okay, guys. Popped. Sorry this has so many rants in it. It's really, like, I'm sorry. I apologize. (laughs) 
continue now. Okay, so part four is a a fateful bargain concluded with God. Before attending to the meaning of these parallels, meaning of these parallels, it is necessary to consider one additional allusion in Shoftim chapter 11, this one to Breshit chapter 22. As Yiftach approaches his home, the narrator informs us that his daughter, an only child, Yechida, went out to greet him. At that moment, the reader realizes the terrible truth. Yiftach is about to offer his Yechida as a sacrifice, just as Avram had nearly offered up his Yechid, Yitzchak. It should be noted that masculine and feminine forms of Yechid are only attested 12 times in Tanakh, and in only six contexts is it used with reference to a child. The infrequency with which we encounter this word bolsters the likelihood that we have here an intentional echo of that Kedah. Um, yeah, I see that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, interestingly, there, um, there appear to be echoes of Breshi chapter 22 and Bamidbar chapters 22 to 24, um, as several others have noted. I would suggest that this triangle of intertextuality encompassing Breshi chapter 22, Bamidbar chapters 22 and tw- to 24, and Shoftim chapter 11, all narratives centered upon sacrifice to, sacrifices to God, highlights a contrast between Balak and Bilam and Yiftach on the other hand, and Abraham on, on one hand, and Abraham on the other. Yiftach's failing the source of the tragedy in Shoftim chapter 11 was his attempt to strike a bargain to negotiate with God. It was at that point that Yiftach was forced to abandon his smooth-talking ways and remain silent in the face of tragedy. The story of Bilam is likewise a narrative about human efforts to control, to control God. Balak seeks the services of Bilam, of Bilam, who the king assumes will successfully manipulate the divine will. Despite Bilam's rem- remonstrations, he too um, makes an effort to elicit a curse from God by offering sacrifices. In the end, however, God confirms that he is, quote, not capricious or mortal to change his mind. Um, Abraham, on the other hand, is the obedient servant who is told to sacrifice his son and offers no resistance. As Eric or Orbach points out, the story of the, of the Akedah is fraught with background, and the biblical narrator does not give us a window into Abraham's inner thoughts. Instead, we see Avraham as the quintessential believer following God's charge, no matter what the implications or stakes involved. Um, Yiftach's character is thus aligned with Balak and Bilam, and the, and the biblical narrator alludes to the um, pen, Pentateuchal, I never know how to pronounce that, the five books of the Torah's narratives in order to highlight Yiftach's fateful error in judgment. Interviewing children, <laughs> what? Sorry, I'm just going to say it again. I am so confused as to why we're talking about the wrong Parsha right now. Oh, okay. So I looked it up. Basically, in oh. in America, it's going to be, like, next week for us, it's going to be Chukat Balak. They always do it together. So I guess, like, they were just assuming that you're going to read them together or something. But what I was getting mad. So then what's that half Torah for Balak in Israel? Like, I just want to know that. True. I was I was really or getting mad. Or I don't know. What, yeah, what's the half Torah for Chukat? And I don't, wait, what's, what's the next, okay, we'll talk about it after, but I was going to ask what's next week, because if next week isn't about Balak, then we're two weeks ahead. Well, I don't know, well, next week, no, next week is Parshat Balak. Well, next week in America, we're also going to be caught up, because it's Kukat Balak. Oh, I was doing it the wrong way. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I don't know, we'll find out. 
But anyways, in reviewing Shokim chapter 11, we observed that God was a ubiquitous presence in the chapter's negotiations, including a, including in units two and three, where Yiftach invoked God as the one who will determine the outcome of the negotiations. Yiftach recognized that the outcome of all negotiations is contingent on the divine will, but he did not heed that lesson in trying to manipulate the divine will through his vow. The message of the Yiftach narrative illustrates the theme of dual casualty, causality. Wow. Okay. Of dual causality, a motive which underlies the book of Shoftim as a whole. Human actions are only proxies for the divine will. Yiftach's mistake was in thinking that man can strike a deal with God and thereby affect the course of history. Part five, conclusion. Yiftach's failing in this case was his assumption that God could serve as an appropriate negotiating partner, that Yiftach's mellifluous tongue could work its magic on, magic on the deity as well. At the end of the story, Yiftach has nothing left to say. His power of speech escapes him as he admits to his daughter that, for once, he cannot return, and his final speech, act, consists of only one word, go. The reader recalls that er the earlier reference to Balak's failure to vanquish B'nai Israel, and at the conclusion of the story, appreciates the irony of that statement. Yiftach, invoking the example of Balak, understood that God is not capricious, and yet, in the end, he succumbed to the same error in judgment. Yiftach's story lacks the happy ending that we saw in the Akedah, and perhaps the narrator seeks to build dramatic tension by having us hope that God will yet again intervene at the 11th hour. Alas, Yiftach learns a lesson already incul inculcated in Bamidbar, chapters 22 to 24, that God cannot be bargained with, and one negotiates with the deity, and one, and and one negotiates with the deity, oh, at one's peril. Vizahu. <laughs> Siam Tanu, Siam, Siam, Siamnu. That's the word. Wow, that really was very difficult for me, guys. Don't judge me. I actually know a little bit of Hebrew. Oh my God, Israel. All right, we are done. <laughs> that was that one might have been painful for you guys, but it was also painful for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry we just put you through that. Uh, mostly me. I talk a lot, guys. Sorry. <laughs> No, same though. And I, and like, at least you sounded smart when you were talking. I, yeah, like, I just said Siam Tanu. No. <laughs> Siam Nu. Siam Tanu. <laughs> yeah, literally so good. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, food for thought, all that. Guys, seriously, look up. Like, what is the, the Chukat Haft Torah in Israel then? I'm just so confused. True. No, me too. He really did that to me. Yeah, that was just, okay, fine, I guess. But it was interesting. There are definitely parallels. Chazal did that. Yeah, it was interesting. I'll give him that. I think I just lack the enthusiasm that I should have had for it. Same. All right. Well, goodbye. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>